You are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast, a platform we've created to bring the Nordic tech community together. My name is Charlotte Roberts and I'm your host. I'd just like to say a massive thank you uh, to everyone for joining today. Uh, Of course, the discussion will be how can companies practically use AI and deep learning in 2021? Um, So first and foremost, if everyone could um, do a quick introduction of themselves. If Anders, if you'd like to introduce yourself first, that'd be great. Yeah, for sure. And thanks, Charlotte. Um, So I usually present myself as an old guy, an extreme tech nerd. But I've been working and doing research in AI for like 20 years and did a PhD in Linship University for about 20 years ago. And actually continued in academia for some time, but then we were basically lured into industry, um, but then got a taste for actually working with AI in industry is actually in in many ways more rewarding than actually doing that in academia. So I've been doing that mainly for the last like 15 years and been in a number of companies like Spotify, where I worked for many years. And, and we had a research group that basically made use of big data and machine learning techniques to try to both understand and optimize different services at Spotify. I also then uh, moved on to a company called Peltarion that got a lot of funding for trying to help other companies get started with the latest type of AI techniques. And also connected to, I think, one of the questions we'll be speaking about later, you know, what the problem is that the companies have in getting started with using especially latest AI techniques. Um, and one of those problems is the tooling and the, the level of maturity that is lacking today and, and how we can try to help with that. But since the recent month, I've been um, moved into to another very exciting area. So I'm now trying to help the Swedish security service in scaling up their data science and AI efforts. So very much looking forward to to working more with that as well. I've also been part of uh, starting the Swedish um, AI agenda work that we had, the AI Sweden and the European AI Alliance and a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah, so a big tech nerd is basically what, what I am. <laughs> oh, lovely. Yeah, I love that. Uh, love that introduction. And we'll definitely get to answer um, your questions later on, which is great. Um, Matthias, if you could give um, a quick introduction to yourself as well, that would be lovely. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, in, you know, uh, practically, I've also been working with in the field of AI for, for about for, you know, a little more than 20 years as well. Although we didn't consider ourselves working with AI, uh, I'm I'm a computer linguist, and I've uh, since since I left university at the end of the 2000s, uh, I or end of the 90s, I've been working with uh, natural language processing, understanding, and also speech recognition ever since. So um, a few years back, uh, all of a sudden, uh, you know, the guys guys like me who were in that field. We were kind of used to, you know, not rendering too much of interest, uh, apart from some tech nerds and, and some companies who, you know, understood that you could actually use this for something. Um, uh, all of a sudden, uh, we're in the middle of, you know, one of the hottest technology trends for for decades, right? So, but but I'm I'm super uh, interested in all the the latest technologies, uh, you know, especially maybe in in my my home field. Uh, where there have been some, some, you know, amazing strides uh, over the past uh, three, four, five years. Um, but um, yeah, so so um, 
I work um, with the practical aspects of AI mostly, although we do some some research and, and R&D, obviously, uh, at Telia as well in our product unit where I'm I'm responsible for the, you know, AI and automation. Um, but mostly we focus on the practical applications of AI technology in, in different types of solutions that our customers uh, may, may want to have. And, and uh, uh, I would say, you know, the common denominator in, in many of the applications we see today is natural language and, and obviously also, uh, you know, vast amounts of uh, uh, unstructured data, which is language uh, in, in a way. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very psyched about what is going on right now. Uh, and I'm also very happy to see that we're approaching a stage where we are viewing AI not as something, you know, uh, mythological almost. It's actually something that we can, we can, we can work with and, and we can shave off a bit of the the unrealistic uh, hypes and expectations on the technology as well so we're maturing a bit uh, i believe in our way to see to, to view the you know practical implementations of ai mm -hmm. so yeah you know uh trying trying to and, and sorry I, I since since i'm a linguist uh, I also think it's very important um, being in this part of the world, uh, you know, in the Nordics with very small languages, I think it's important for everyone working in this field, especially if you're working in the area of, of, of uh, computational linguistics and NLP, etc., to, to, to contribute uh, to, to making this technology also available for our very small languages. Otherwise, we're going to be you know, run over by English speaking part of the world or German or Spanish speaking or Chinese speaking part of the world. So I think that is important also to keep our position as, as a, you know, digital, you know, highly digitalized and, and, and sophisticated technical part, part of the world. So I think that is also, you know, soft, uh, soft part of our mission to, to contribute to that as well. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, enough of, <laughs> enough of, <laughs> of that. No, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, Alexander, if you'd like to introduce yourself, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. And uh, and my background is as a transformation professional. So I, I worked my whole uh, professional career in, uh, with company transformation, business transformation in, in different roles. And I started out in management consulting, <clears throat> did larger transformation programs for customers. And then I ended up uh, working for Ericsson for seven years uh, with strategy execution and digital transformation and, uh, and automation and AI predominantly working with three different uh, CIOs uh, quite closely and um, and I, I was one of the kind of pioneers starting uh, starting uh, automation and AI when that started to scale within Ericsson that had been a research topic and something that had have been done a lot for, for many, many years, but I think 2016, 2017, that really started to become mainstream and something that was uh, heavily invested in. So I had the opportunity to lead uh, and build the uh, the group that was driving this internally in, uh, in Ericsson uh, and growing that team from uh, very small to, I think we were close to 500 people when I, when I left, including partners. Uh, and 80 data scientists. So uh, we did lots and lots of automation and AI uh, projects and uh, not because we thought that was, you know, fun from a technology perspective, but because we saw that that was really generating a lot of uh, business value and quite transformative in, uh, in many parts of the, of the company. And, and based on that, 
you know, a colleague of mine saw the opportunity to to actually create a product that would solve some of the challenges that the companies were facing when scaling automation AI. And that was the birth of Turbotic, which is my current company, which is a SaaS company providing um, enterprise software for uh, managing automation and AI initiatives. So in, in my new role, I'm the chief strategy officer here. Um, uh, I'm helping uh, my our customers then to uh, use this product to have better success with their automation and AI initiatives. Mm -hmm. That's oh. my that's my background. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you very much for for your introduction. And last but not least, Patrick, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah, certainly. So hi everyone, uh, Patrick Couch. I guess I'm sort of the odd one out here. Uh, my background is I was pursuing a uh, an academic career in the humanities uh, in the fields of philosophy and literature. And I wrote my my thesis, uh, my, my, um, my master thesis, which led me on to the PhD program on, um, wait, sorry, apologies. Um, yeah, so I was pursuing uh, an academic career and I was writing about the human machine interaction and interfacing and, and boundary blurring and the impacts of interacting with technology on the way we think from a literary philosophical perspective, focusing on uh, the sci-fi writings of William Gibson. And then there was, a, there was a point in my career where I felt that I really needed a change of scene, I really needed a break. And this was at the end of the 90s. And a lot of my friends at business school, they were starting up dot-com companies to sort of um, capitalize on the possibilities of these new digital technologies that were coming. So I sort of ended up there and I was, spending years and years and years running around doing different things there. And then eventually IBM picked me up and that sort of returned me to the fold looking at artificial intelligence as a viable uh, problem for businesses to tackle. And then all of a sudden these things that I had been pursuing from a rather theoretical or philosophical uh, perspective became very real and practically valid to discuss. And we can see this in all the the, the discussions ongoing now with ethics and biases and the problems of scaling and the way you know social media is, is um, impacting social discourse and then in and in a number of ways and I just saw recently you know was it last year when Mark Zuckerberg started talking about metaverse which is you know a, a, a lean on Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash novel so we see this theme these themes of you know fiction stipulates a vision and then somebody will have the idea to try and realize it. And I think, like Matthias said, I think we are in a very interesting time and place now with, with technology and, and us humans using it. And I think it'll be a very interesting conversation today in this podcast to see what you, you guys think, so think about some of these questions that that interaction raises. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. And I think with given everybody's sort of background um, and expertise, I think that's exactly why um, I'm excited for this podcast and for the discussion to um, get kickstarted because it's definitely going to be an interesting one. So thank you again, Patrick, for your introduction. Um, so I'll first and foremost start off with Anders' question. Um, so Anders, mm. you asked, what is the future of AI? Will the AI divide continue or will AI start to uh, democratise? Um, so if you'd like to give a little bit of background behind your question, why you think it's important, that kind of thing, and then I'll open it up to the group to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think this concept of, of the AI divide is important. And 
I do think it's important that we understand what the current situation that we have in the world really is. And um, the way that I view it is that we can easily see that a few selected companies, we know the big American tech giants that we have, the Google, the Facebook, the Amazons, the Microsoft, et cetera, of the world, and also the Chinese companies, the Tencent, the Baidu, the Alibabas, et cetera, they, they know how to use data and AI, and they are the most valuable companies in the world today, and without a doubt, in any kind of sector. But we can also see that most other companies that try to make use of data and AI, they usually fail. Um, this is basically the AI divide. The, the problem, you know, this place on the old digital divide that we saw before, but now refers rather to the problem that we have a few selected companies that, that can truly benefit and find the, the, the value in, in data and AI, and very many other companies fail. And I think it's important that we, for one, recognize that this is the situation that we see in the world today, and uh, also try to understand more, you know, why this is and how we can try to fix it. So, um, for I think one way to to try to just lay the land or set the context a bit here is to try to, for one, describe, you know, what is the potential if we use data and AI correctly. And secondly, we need to understand, you know, what is the problem? What, what, why do we have this kind of AI divide today? Why, why have so many other companies problems with doing something that some companies can do very well? And then finally, you know, if we can find some potential solutions in trying to minimize this kind of AI divide. So let please interrupt me, otherwise I can speak about this forever. <laughs> but I, I can at least start to to give some ideas or thoughts that I have. And I think the first one, you know, trying to understand the potential. I, I think no one here in this group or most people listening uh, really needs to be, you know, uh, to be described and and try to understand what the potential is. Everyone knows that it is a great potential and. Just in Sweden, we, you know, we had a big report coming up last year from DIG, a Swedish digitalization authority, that said basically that if we, just in the Swedish public sector alone, use data and AI properly, we have the potential to save 140 billion Swedish crown per year. And there was another report in 2018 from Vinova, a Swedish innovation agency, that said if we make proper use of data and AI, we can basically double the economic growth that we have in Sweden. And the same, of course, for other countries as well. And of course, it's very easy to understand the potential if we just look at the big tech giants, you know, that they have shown and proved that, you know, if we know how to do it, if you have the big research groups, if you have all the data, if you have the infrastructure in place and can build products and services that make use of this, um, it is a huge potential. We can also see from a more research point of view that it's been an amazing amount of, you know, advances from a research point of view. Now I'm not speaking about in like operational AI, but more like a research AI point of view. And we can see what open AI and DeepMind and, and uh, the Chinese companies and other companies are doing with models like, um, you know, everyone speaking about GPT-3 or Clip or DALI or I think one of the, the most amazing ones that just recently came out is from Facebook called BlenderBot 2.0 that is, uh, I think, much more uh, amazing, but also much, much more scary. And, and just to give a bit of a background about that, you know, so, so for one, this is a, a model that can understand text, but 
what it can also do, it, it can basically search the whole internet at the same time. So you can ask it a question, it can try to give an answer, but can also do background research in real time, trying to figure out, you know, what should the answer for this specific question be, and then have a discussion about that. And, and this is a, a type of discussion that is extremely well working and intelligent. And, and this is amazing, you know, that this, the value that this type of services can bring is amazing, but you can also think from another side, imagine if this type of service gets in the hands of someone that abuses it. Imagine if some um, foreign country that wants to abuse it were to use it to kind of spread the propaganda of some kind of opinion, and suddenly you flood all the social medias and whatnot of comments, that is from a factual point of view accurate super hard to detect you know it can have big effects so although the positive you know potential is amazing it's i think important uh, just as equally to also think about the potential abuses that these kind of very powerful techniques can have definitely uh, um sorry yeah, yeah please uh, otherwise you know I speak too much all the time, but mm. let me just speak <laughs> a bit. Uh, that's the you know, potential, and I hope you all agree. I mean, we can easily see the, the advances that we have seen, and, and, and I think you all agree that the potential is huge if we use it correctly. But the problem we also have is the divide. And the problem is that you know, some few companies have you know, the big research group, all the knowledge, the infrastructure, the data, and they can build products in a, in a very agile and, and quick and efficient way. And what, especially, you know, from the time in Peltorin, we, when we collaborate with so many other companies and we'd really tried to, to help them in the journey to become more data-driven and AI-ready, um, you know, you, you hear the kind of question or, you know, when you speak to them, they, you hear the kind of comments saying, yeah, we, we have the data, no problem. You know, we won't really make the investment in AI. We do believe in, in that. But then when you start to dig a bit more deeper into you know, what the situation is, they don't have the data, it's not organized, it's not ready to be used as training data for the specific use case they're interested in. And they don't have the infrastructure in place and they don't have the mindset of how you should work with AI-driven products, which is different from software engineering, traditional software engineering. So all that kind of understanding and knowledge is lacking and therefore they fail. And it's kind of obvious when you, when you see it. And that's something that we need to, to try to fix. And uh, it's also the famous concept of the prototype graveyard that I, I love that as a concept. And although uh, I hate <laughs> that that is the situation that we have in the world, but we see a lot of companies basically doing POCs, proof of concepts, but they never get into production and they end up in the so-called prototype graveyard. And, and this is a big problem that is causing the AI divide and we need to fix. Yeah, perhaps I should stop there, um, but we could start to think about, you know, what the potential sol solutions could be. But to before we can do that, I think it's super important to first understand what the potential is and what the problem is. And, uh, and this were some of my initial thoughts about that, at least. No, definitely. And Matthias, did you have something to add to that then? Sorry. <clears throat> well, well, of course, I mean, the, 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 the potential is, uh, is, is huge. Uh, again, I think uh, for, for those of us working in this field, I, I think still it's very important to be very concrete about what the potential is, what you can actually do and what you cannot do today. Um, but that is sort of a sidebar. But when it comes to the AI divide and, and the, the, the head start that these large companies have, uh, it's, it's, um, 
I don't know if it was a, 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 a conscious strategy for, from, from, from their part or, or they just so happened to have all this data that they could do whatever they wanted with. And this is one of the differences between these companies and, and many other companies such as my, you know, a telco like Telia, right? We have plenty of data. We, we cannot use that data in the same way as, as, as Facebook or, or Google does. And we've given them our consent to do whatever they want with our data in, 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 in a way, at least we, we used to. Uh, so I think they had all this data uh, and they, 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 they then had, had that head start. And obviously they had the economic muscles to, to you know, hire whoever they wanted to, to create these, uh, these uh, research teams, et cetera. But I think the key here is the, the data uh, and, and the, uh, not, not just having data, but being able to actually use it um, and uh, this is what differentiates these companies from many other organizations, I believe, in the world. And then we're also in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a time now where we're talking about regulating AI and regulating the technology. And, and the EU wants to take the leadership in sustainable or ethical AI, which, uh, which is very, very good. But we may also, you know, uh, uh, hamper ourselves in, in terms of, of uh, research because we're making it so difficult to, to, to do things because we have all of these, may have, you know, all these regulations for good and for bad. I, I just want to make that very clear. I'm not, I'm not against regulating. I'm not against, um, uh, at least to some point. Uh, but I think that is a key uh, differentiator. Um, so, and, and they have this head start. What I think, though, is very interesting is all of these open uh, initiatives uh, just to get those open initiatives used uh, out there in the real world, in, in the industry, in organizations, public and private sector. That could be a countering, uh, sort of a countering of these, of these uh, major companies that have, that, that have acquired this head start. But sort of, yeah, my, my reflections on, on, on that divide and why we're there. Let me just comment quickly about that, because I, I think you made some really good points, especially about regulation, which is a... Uh... Not the most fun topic to speak about, but very important one for sure. And um, I, just as you say as well, Matthias, I, of course we need to have a regulation, but we need to have the proper one. Mm -hmm. And the the intentions of, for example, GDPR that uh, were put in place a couple of years back were really good. But mm -hmm. what really turned out to happen was that the big tech giants, the big companies that have legal resources to actually do comply with them, they have no problem at all to be compliant with that. And then uh, they turned out that the, the other companies that do not have the big legal resources, they are suffering from it and instead are not investing and having, you know, daring to innovate in, in these fields. So mm -hmm. it's actually increasing the AI divide significantly. Mm -hmm. And I think this is important, especially for the upcoming AI Act, to, to really think about the consequences mm -hmm. before you put new regulation in place. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And at the same time, I must say, I mean, I don't think uh, prohibitive uh, measures ever work. I'm one of those, you know, legalize and regulate type of guys generally. And I think that is a much more uh, viable way forward. But I must say, when it comes to this divide in the democracy, we, we tend to toss these words around. And I really think that the, there is a, there's a misconception here. I think uh, 
obvious it's obvious to me that there will be a divide uh, a continuous increase of the divide i mean i do not see you, you can just compare it to you know vaccine availability across the globe or something i mean we always see these divides where uh, countries and companies with power or means or access to means uh, will sort of frog leap or or uh, push ahead and, and foray into the future and, and others will be left behind and that if we you know socially aware or for some other reason we, we we bring them with us okay but i don't think there's anything inherent in the technology that would lessen the divide in itself when it comes to the democratizing part i don't think there will be any democratizing of ai really but there will be a ubiquitous presence of ai everywhere so everybody will sort of be invited willing or no to make use of the of the of the technologies or forced to use the technologies but what i think is really telling when it comes to this specific topic is that we we tend to and when we, when we talk about the powerhouses of, of ai we tend to point to china and we tend to point to the us and both of those countries uh, are and their cultures are very different but they share this uh, complete um, uh, 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 how shall I put it? Uh, they're almost the victims of their own success in terms of their technology use. China is, of course, a totalitarian dictatorship, more or less. And the U.S. is just becoming this balkanized postmodern nightmare where people don't trust anything because of the, of the, of the, of the large availability of manipulative measures on the net. So I think what we need to really do is what I think the EU has been doing for, for, for some years and just trying to tackle this from a non-tech angle and try to bring people up to par when it comes to how to think about the interaction with technology and what we need to make sure that we have at our disposal in terms of evaluating the potential consequences. I think there's a complete naivete rampant within and without uh, the tech community whether or not you are pro or against, you know, the good or the bad outweighing the other. Uh, so I think really, maybe this is just me as a humanities type of guy to push for, for the, the, the reinstatement of depreciation of humanities <laughs> and, and other disciplines. But I do think it is important to stress the fact that technology impacts us in very many ways that we don't foresee uh, the details of. So we need to sort of uh, uh, tread gently, I guess. But as many have pointed out before this discussion, obviously, is that now we have a, we're we're facing a technolo uh, technological revolution, so to speak, and and we're having this conversation while it or before it has happened, while in the past we have you know faced the consequences of our technological advancements when it's, you know too late. So this is a you know if you want to take an optimistic view on this uh, this aspect, I think it's very good that this is a, a, a has been a top topic for, for many. Uh, I mean, even Barack Obama had his uh, AI council uh, a few years, you know, um, and the EU are making a big point of it. And, you know, everyone in, in every AI conference you go to uh, discuss these topics. So obviously we, we are aware of the problems and we, we, you know, just, you know, need to find a way to maneuver around here and, and, and make this uh, some a technology that is uh, for, for, the, for the good of all instead of, you know, for the benefit of, of, of a few. And I yeah. think for one thing that is positive, that we're actually talking about it as, as early on as we're doing. Alexander, yeah. did you have something to add to that? Yeah, yeah, sure. And I, I think we sh <laughs> there are a lot of challenges. And I, I think the kind of AI divide will 
continue to grow. But I think there's also a lot of positives and I've been attending conferences, not on the research side, but more on the um, you know business side of automation AI for, for five years. And I think it's it's been quite a dramatic change in maturity of what companies and organizations do. Um, and that might be primarily larger organizations that have really started to invest more and 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 tackle this in a in a more mature way uh, since the last couple of years. Obviously pushed by the overall hype in the in the society. Um, but also there are so many things that you could do with AI and data that is not uh, kind of boxed in by privacy. Uh, concerns, uh, not maybe not if you're in the B2C business, but if you are in B2B or if you work with industrial applications and if you work with enterprise type of solutions, I think there are, there's a lot of untapped potential. We can do a lot lot of business value with, with AI. But a common thing that most organizations will, um, will can improve in is how they manage this type of questions internally. Mm. And I, I believe many companies are, are are going wrong. They might be treating this too much as, as a technology question or IT question or, or maybe a research type of question. But this is a business transformation. And, and the companies and organizations, you know, private sector or public sector need to tra treat this as a business transformation and apply, you know, normal logic on how to drive business transformation, not believe that this is... Uh, just a, um, something that will happen by itself by hiring a data scientist or hiring a bunch of people reporting five la layers down in some IT organization, then nothing will happen. This, is, this needs to start from the top, but you need to get the organization with you and you need to you know, balance um, business benefits and objectives with uh, adding the right transformation competence, the right uh, business SME type of competence, so that you work with the right use cases and continuously identify new use cases and you need to have the right technical competences you can build and maintain all these uh, solutions in a in a good way so uh, it's it's a much broader question than only you know the technical and data and platform and infrastructure type of of questions that maybe some organizations tend to you know focus on uh, so yeah, it's um, it's important and it's a C-suite type of question that needs to be taken seriously if a company really wants to reap the benefits of these technologies. And an extremely difficult question to to maneuver around <laughs> yeah. uh, for for many. Um, yeah. Should, I fully agree, as well. It's more than just adding another programming language or another type of cloud computing service. It's really something that should change the whole business, as you say, Alexander. So, yeah, I fully agree. Yeah, and I, absolutely. That That is a very good point. And I think to your point earlier, Anders, about uh, if you look at these the companies that are big, what do they all share? What Why have they succeeded? What have they done rightly? And one thing that they have done, they have all defined themselves as digital or data-driven or data-first type companies. And then whatever applicability of that insight they have pursued, that has been a secondary aspect. So Amazon is just you know this data-rich beast and it can go anywhere because mm -hmm. the digital market is a single market. Mm -hmm. Everybody who's online is online in the same space. 
And I think that mindset uh, needs to be adopted regardless of what you want to do with your business. So if you want to be part of the business that sort of decreases the divide and that is your 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 contribution to to the to the to the society as a fallout of your business um, provisioning or whatever then i think that's fine but i really think you need to think about the implications of there being a single market which is digital which is global which has 10 billion potential customers and we are you know, reeling in everybody else. I mean, all these satellites that are being shut up to, to get everybody online will just, you know, create an even bigger market. And so the, the potential will be even greater. But if you think that you can be not fully embedded in that market, I think you're making a mistake. And that goes for public sector as well. Yeah, I can just add a small anecdote from Spotify Times as well. And, and they made a big like business level transformation back in 2011 when they moved from being more desktop first oriented to being becoming more mobile first oriented. And, and this is not you know, just a thing where you add a couple of mobile apps and, and add it to the company. It's really changing everything in the organization. It's changing how you, the whole business model itself, you know, what to really make money from. It changes how the organization is organized, you know, what type of groups you have. It changed how you could have licenses from record labels and whatnot. And of course it changed the technology as well, but it was a like complete business level transformation that happened. And the, you know, Google did the same, you know, they went out in 2016 and said, you know, they went from being mobile first to becoming AI first mm -hmm. in 2016. And that once again, changed the whole organization. It changed, you know, what is the business model they have? How do they work with data throughout the different products and services that they do have? How do you organize the whole, whole organization? And you need to think about these things in a more holistic setting to truly be able to make a successful change and use of this. Hmm. So, yeah, I fully agree. Definitely. Um, moving on to the, the next question now then. Um, so this is Matthias's question. So data uh, scarcity in a data abundant world. How do we cope with the fact that much of the data we have and could use for AI research is not possible to use due to privacy considerations, quality or even legal aspects? Is the solution uh, synthetic data? So Matthias, if you'd like to give a bit of background behind this question, um, and then I'll let everyone jump in. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we've already touched upon this in, in, in uh, you know, in the previous discussion. Um, I mean, there's there's no lack of data today, um, and and most organizations have uh, tons of data, um, but the the data may not be the right data obviously it may not be of the right quality but that is nothing new that is you know quality issues with data is something that has been around for, for forever um, but uh, i think this is interesting from a you know from a broader perspective because um, as as you patrick said i mean maybe it's not a coincidence that, the, that these countries like the us and, and china are so successful in, in this field because they are not so particular about how they use people's data. Uh, I know there, you know, there, there are things that you can do uh, in terms of applications that would be out of the question uh, here, for instance, in this part of the world. So there may be, um, you know, we, we may have the data. I mean, as a, a telco, 
if if a telco with uh, the wrong intentions would like to use you know our our, our uh, subscribers data we 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 have that we can see you know we you know we could use uh, conversations and we can use a lot of traffic data and, and but we we don't do that obviously it's it's first of all it's it's ethically not you know uh, acceptable and and secondly it's not legal um but getting the right data for the right uh, research purposes of the product development uh, things is i think is a problem today and is going to be a, a bigger problem because uh, I mean, we need to find a way to to collect data uh, and 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 use that data transparently with the with the end users' consent. First of all, and how do we do that without blurring the way we treat consumers' data? Otherwise, it's 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 a thin line to tread, right? Um, and and um, um, because without data, and I mean, if we talk about machine learning and specifically deep learning, without the data that is suitable for what one do, we, we cannot go anywhere uh, unless we go with these big companies. Um, so I think I think it's a, it's an emerging problem. Uh, and I think it's something we need to consider when we talk about privacy and, and regulation uh, in, on, a, on a EU level. And again, I just want to stress that I, I'm a fan of, 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 of you know, human rights and, 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 and personal integrity and all that. I think we need that. We, we should not be able to use whatever data we may have for for purposes it was not collected for i'm 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 totally behind that but but to come to to get to the you know you know possible solutions that i've you know come across over the past years uh, that i find quite interesting is as uh, one one is then synthetic data uh, and the other one is you know crowdsourcing the data where you collect data openly like the mozilla did a, a project or still has a project where you can actually donate your data for for a very specific eu uh, ai research uh, purpose um you know so just want to get the question out there do you have any you know you know uh, uh, what's your view on this what's your you know uh, uh, experience with uh, with with uh, any of these kinds of solutions but before i let the word loose uh, one one obvious problem with with both of these approaches is um, if you produce if let's say if you crowdsource data there is a high risk that this data will be you know biased or nuanced because you know how will you get the right distribution of, of data or users because there may be a certain group of people who are more inclined to donating data of, of a certain kind for instance and there's a it's a sort of a fictive situation where you donate this data uh, very different from let's say taking a phone recording from a, someone calling a customer service agent uh, and secondly the the, the synthetic data how do you make sure that that data is also representative and, and and really resembles the data that you need to create your models that that you know does what you want them to do uh, so I, I think this is a an important topic if we want to keep the pace up in in in, in both in the academia in academia but also in the industry uh, and I'm starting to to view this as a potential problem to be honest Patrick, did you have something to say? Yeah, to well, I, I think this is a great uh, topic, and and you, I think you you touch on a number of different things that are super relevant for, for this conversation. Um, one thing that that I'm, you're right. I mean, um, it's interesting with the, with the, with the with the call data records from from cell companies because they have all always been very good at, at collecting very detailed records, and then that that data has always been. Uh, not allowed to use for uh, for mm. market um, or, or anti-churn uh, modeling or stuff like that, right? But mm. they've been they've been keeping the records so that authorities 
can make use of them if there is uh, a need for it and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But that re then relates also to these uh, back doors of the devices that governments want to have and all of this. Mm -hmm. So once you have data, once you have a, a digital replica or part of your of yourself or your life or your 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 network, then you know challenging questions arise. And uh, mm -hmm. I certainly do not have any 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 um, solution to this. I have I have a number of concerns but what mm -hmm. i was curious to hear about i remember or i seem to recall a couple of years ago there was talk about um, a new technique for encrypting data in a way that made it impossible to decrypt but possible to manipulate and i think ibm was involved in this and they called it lattice cryptography mm -hmm. i don't know if anything mm -hmm. came out of it but but again i mean that could be one avenue right if you can mm -hmm. scramble the data in a way that makes it possible to identify certain aspects, but you can still use it for, for mm. in some way. Don't ask mm. me how. The techie guy up there mm. in front of Hal needs to answer this. But I think that mm. could be one way to go, right? If we think about it mm. in terms of encryption and and, mm. uh, and and prevention of misuse, while at the same time making possible uh, research into new ways of, of, uh, of continuing progressing. Mm. Yeah, I can, um, I can just, yeah. Yes, do you want to? No, I just. I mean, obviously, this 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 is this is a this is a a, a problem with data that contains or could contain any personal information. Mainly, of, of course, if you're just looking at uh, uh, at you know data that that has nothing to do with with any individuals, um, that's a totally different topic. Um, but but here, when we touch upon you know the privacy aspects and 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 those things that's and a lot of the data that is really really interesting especially if you work with language understanding is actually something that comes from humans so it may you know often contain uh, a lot of uh, you know stuff that that is required or, or regarded as personal information so that kind of data is is often very sensitive um yeah so anders yeah, and, um, you open up a lot of questions there and good comments, but um, to, to just start with some of your comments, Patrick, and, and some of the techniques, uh, you know, I, I love when we perhaps not try to just add regulation or forbid use of certain techniques for, for, you know, safety reasons, but actually try to use technology to make it safe. Mm. And that is what I think you mentioned here uh, with lattice encryption, or rather the kind of homomorphic encryption, for example, which basically allows you to encrypt the data and then uh, train the models on the cipher, you know, the output from the encryption. Right. It, it sounds great, but in, in practice, actually, it still doesn't work very well. It's like mm. a thousand times slower than normal type of learning algorithms. Mm. Mm. But the idea is great. Uh, so, mm. However, in practice, it doesn't really work that well yet. But there are a lot of other techniques that you can use. Like, you know, federated learning is, is coming along mm. very nicely these days. Mm. And the whole idea of decentralized uh, training that you can mm. do to you know, not move the data around, but rather move the models around. And then that way, never share the data, but still be able to learn models is, is a typical and, and great example of how you use techniques to safeguard um, privacy mm. instead of simply forbid it. Mm. Um, and I think this is a very good and important way to go forward. Um, mm. I also think another problem is that we need to, for one, recognize what the situation is today in the world. And especially with all the cons consumer facing companies that we have, you know, the big tech giants especially, but also a lot of others, they can simply put up a, a big terms of service agreement mm. that you have to click and no mm. one reads and then they can yeah. use it for whatever they want 
exactly. they get around this kind of regulation. So, I mean, the regulation doesn't work. I mean, well, you I give think them your obvious. consent because it's the only way to, to use their service. Exactly. Right? So, Otherwise, you have to not use it. So, yeah, obviously, yeah, okay. it's so absurd situation today. And, and I, I, for me, it's very strange that not more people think this is absurd and, and don't Absolutely. do anything more about it. Mm. Mm. It's no, a weird I'm, situation that we have today. It is today. a super yeah. weird situation, and, and mm. that reminds me of, uh, uh, I remember ages ago when, when uh, there was no alternative uh, to uh, commercial TV. So there wasn't really a big pay-per-view type uh, yeah. situation mm. out there. But today, you can sort of, you can subscribe to Netflix, for instance, and there won't be any sort of advertiser, advertising breaks in disturbing the film. I mean, they will certainly put products in the movies and, you know, you're being exposed and manipulated all kinds of ways. But at least that interesting, you know, you pay to not have that, that blatant in your face. That could be one way, again, Alexander, to transform the business, right? You go from a commercial ad revenue based uh, business model to something else. And of course, that something else needs to be, you need to figure out a way to price it so that people you know, so that it makes sense for everybody. But I do think that we need to think about it much broader uh, than the specific, perhaps, problem that we're, that we're dealing with, because you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. I also think that crowdsourcing is a great way, but as you say, you know, crowdsourcing and, and you know, how you fill out surveys and stuff like that come with their own set of problems. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you, could, if you could work the transparency angle so people could more easily understand what you, or, what you are sharing, mm -hmm. I, would love, I would love to be able to just call up Google and say, hey, Google, you know, what do you know about me? Give me everything and, and present it to me so I can consume it, so I understand. And I will get back to you what I'm comfortable with and not. And, and that well, ease of, of interaction, interac inviting the user and democratizing you know, mm. participation is lacking. And I think that could be one way of circumventing the, the, mm. the terms of service uh, uh, hack that the big co companies yeah. use. I mean, I, I think this is important because, um, I mean, in the 90s, when, when um, at KTH, uh, you know, uh, in, in collaboration with many other universities, when, when we created one of the first uh, speech databases for creating, you know, research um, 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 speech recognition uh, engines or models, uh, people went around uh, all over the country with a microphone and a recorder and said, you know, give me a couple of audio samples, read from this book or whatever. It was very, very apparent and, and transparent what this data was and what they were doing and what it was going to be used for. Uh, today, we, we have tons of that data. We're just drowning in that data if, if, you know, if someone would start recording, right? But it's not collected for that purpose. And since, since um, we are very, we should be very concerned about privacy. We should not use data without, you know, individuals' consent. Uh, but we're also very scared if we do things wrong, uh, we may end up with huge fines and, and bad press, etc. So, the, the 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 because we are scared. Uh, and when I say we, I'm not speaking. I'm speaking generally, of course. It's easier to say no. Don't touch the data. Don't do anything. Uh, so we need to figure out ways to to work with data, to collect it for the right purposes, and and to 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 do this transparently, so we just don't halt uh, uh, our our uh, sort of uh, uh, ambitions. Uh, and I think that is a it's something that is it's important to discuss, and it's important to to sort of um, get your hands around this. I believe, um, yeah. Alexander, did you have something to add to that? Um, no, but I, I agree with what everybody has been saying. It's a, it's a, 
it's a tricky question, right? And um, privacy and, and the consumer applications and AI is not going hand in hand unless you kind of own the platform and own and can set your own rules. Uh, but and and then most organizations and most people can't do anything about it, you know. Despite you know mm -hmm. saying I'm not going to be on Facebook anymore. But <clears throat> what what I think we in Sweden we don't really own any of these platforms or have any companies, mm -hmm. many at least. Um, but we could probably focus on things that we are good good at. I mean, we we are we are world leaders in in telecom uh, AI uh, research, right? Together, maybe together with China, and we could pr probably be world leaders in many other industrial areas, industrial application areas of uh, of a, a AI, where we are strong in industry. If we in the industry focus on, uh, you know, creating the right business solution, where privacy might be a little bit of a less less mm. of a uh, concern. Mm. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe we could uh, put some additional focus on the areas where we could really be a strong contender in the market, and that is probably not in advertising, and that is probably not in in search, uh, but there might be in in other um, in other areas. Mm. Uh, so th I think that's my 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 two cents on this uh, question. Mm -hmm. And also, I think I think I think to Matthias's point about uh, the the potential of of getting access to, to quality data, it's it's so great, right? You can do so many fantastic things if you just know what you're doing and have access to technology and data. So I think mm. we need to find a way of encapsulating that in some sort of secure, you know, um, morally decent uh, uh, way. For instance, there's huge potential of getting access to more personal and individual patient data records uh, mm. and, and other lifestyle factors for getting, for ensuring that you as a, as a patient get the, the, the correct treatment. And this is, of course, a super tricky area to handle online or digitally, but the potential is great because mm. if you could access top-notch research relevant to you, your specific mm. genome, your specific uh, way of uh, handling Friday nights and whatever, mm. then there is so much potential. Mm. So I think we need to work the, the, the reward risk angle a little yeah. bit and yeah. not be afraid to, 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 to use the test bed mentality. And I certainly yeah. think, I mean, I'm not a very nation oriented person, but Sweden has some unique features in our, in our, in our, in our numbers and in our culture that, that makes Sweden a perfect test bed for a bunch of stuff. We're only 10 million people and we are pretty mm. similar. I mean, we could easily get along across the mm. regions for healthcare and stuff like that, mm. but we mm. don't because we don't mm. really think about it in terms of risk and reward and potential. Mm. And we certainly don't want to screw up. I mean, 1177 no. thing, we go like, no, no. let's not do that again. No. No. Anyway, uh, I, I totally agree. There's so much there, so we need to we need to we need to find some way forward here and just not you know stop in our tracks because we're 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 afraid to do something wrong. Um, yeah. So yeah, Charlotte, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, I was just wondering if anyone had anything else to um, sort of add to that just before we move on to the next question. If not, I'll move on to um, Alexander's question. Uh, so Alexander's question or subtopic, should I say, is topic would be um, organisational and operating models enabling AI at scale. Um, so Alexander, if you'd like to give a little bit of background behind your question um, and then I'll let everyone else uh, jump in as well. 
No, yeah, no, I think this this question is is quite quite important. I I tend to think, and maybe it's just because I have the transformation background, that most of the discussions around this topic are either you know philosophical or technical. Mm. Uh, while I my true belief is that this this is a management problem, and it's a business problem, and in order to you know tackle something, then you need to set the right model on how you want to operate as an organization. If, if you are not Google and you are not Facebook, you're a normal, maybe Nordic organization that has some data, that has some business problem, that has have, have people that might not be AI researchers, but you still want to uh, get business value out of AI and, and automation and related uh, technologies. So how do you how do you drive that transformation? How do you organize yourself? How do you create enough a kind of business ownership uh, with the people that owns the PNL, for instance, while still having sufficient uh, scale in in building competence and and making the right technology choices and and investing sufficiently in in things like data and, and infrastructure and data management and uh, and data platforms. Um, you know, how much should you centralize versus how much should you decentralize and what kind of decisions should be taken at what level in the in the organization and who who should you empower to, to drive this this transformation? How do you empower that that person or that team to drive this this transformation? I think these are very, very important questions. That, that every organization can and should uh, think about no matter how, how big or how you know relatively small they are or how how kind of tech savvy they are maybe they are in you know like like my old organization Ericsson where everybody could potentially wanted to do <laughs> AI right because that was hot and everybody was an engineer or if you're a public um, pu public organization where where you have no engineers at all in your uh, organization and you you deliver some totally different type of services to the um, to the society um, that's my that's the question I wanted to um, to discuss here and get your your point of view on and I, I have my point of view but it's pro probably different depending on what organization you are I'm not going to attempt to answer how you do it uh, I just want to shed some more uh, or share some thoughts around it because I think one of the reasons why this is hard is that it is not evident from start what you will actually gain, what will be the results of, let's say, your first research projects. So you will have to spend a lot of money into something that you really don't know uh, what will happen. You don't know the, the benefits, you know, don't know what cost reductions you will actually uh, you know, achieve or what, what, what you know, efficiency improvements you will achieve. So I think this, this is something that uh, may run the risk of, of uh, you know, ending up on the, on the, let's say, the business case uh, graveyard, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so daring to, to take these first leaps, I think, is one of the key, one of the reasons why it's, it's hard to operationalize and, 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 you know, get this as part of your DNA or, or, or your strategy, uh, at least from, from some of the things that I've seen. And I think I have a, 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 a hypothesis um, sometimes um, 
I get the impression that public sector, uh, you know, has come, you know, in, in, in a way uh, is leading, uh, uh, in, in, at least in some aspects of AI, uh, you know, at least trial and errors or deployment compared to portions, at least of the private sector. And maybe this this is because of the same reasons. You don't have that, you know, um, if I, you know, if I invest one million, what what do I get in return? You don't have that same logic of 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 uh, of, of uh, you know operations in in public sector as you have in private sector. Uh, this is uh, just a you know I, I don't have it very much to back this up with, but I see a lot of very very interesting and very forward looking uh, research uh, and 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 um, you know initiatives that goes on in in public sector. Whereas in private sector, it's the it seems to be that some cases the the barriers are are too high to even get going. Um, so just a, a a few thoughts on 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 your topic, Alexander. I don't have any answer to how you solve it. I can just continue your uh, line of discussion there, Matthias, a bit. And uh, we worked um, uh, at Baltarian with both public sector and private sector quite a lot. And I can uh, subscribe to to some of your ideas there that some of the public sector organizations are surprisingly innovative when it comes to data and AI. And just to shout out some names, like uh, the tax authorities, Katteverket is surprisingly fast in actually deploying and making use of AI models today. And mm. also Arbetsmedlingen, uh, the yeah. employment agencies are, mm. are actually surprisingly good, but there are also a lot of bad examples. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think there are some good examples in the private sector as well. But, but I can, I think one, concern that a lot of private sector companies have is the, the short-termness, so to speak, mm -hmm. the just looking at uh, the next sprint of, of the development plan or the next quarterly report that they have to be positive in in some way instead of the more long-termness. That's certainly something that I fought a lot with when working at Spotify and trying to set up a research team that did not look you know, three months ahead, but rather three years or five plus years ahead. And, and that's actually not an easy thing to do, I think, in a lot of organizations. Whereas the big tech giants are doing that all the time. Mm -hmm. So um, I think this is something that I wish more companies could start to think about mm. uh, when it comes to that. When it comes more to uh, what you said, Alexander, as well, about you know how to do, you know, find an operational enable, enablement of AI, you know, we, we usually speak about, about, about you know, two different ways to, to go about doing this. And, and you spoke about the top-down approach, which trying to get the management teams on board and, and making sure that they are really invested in, in, in doing this. And, and that certainly is very important. You can also speak about the bottom-up approach, which, which is more or less that each team try to innovate themselves and then having them innovate and, and coming up. Or you can have a, like a central like data science team somewhere, and then they by themselves try to innovate. And all of these have the pros and cons. And uh, the best, of course, is with have some kind of hybrid approach here. Um, but you know, to to get some company to start, I th still think it's good to find some few selected use cases to start with. They would probably fail, and they would probably not fail because the approach didn't work, but because they didn't have the business organization in place. They didn't have the infrastructure in place. They didn't have the right mindset and understanding and the support from the management team in place. But that will still start 
moving in that direction. So it will come hopefully a point later when each team and each domain expert, rather the data expert or data scientist can, you know, so the domain expert, in, if it's that in manufacturing department or the finance department or the product department or in the sales department or whatnot, when, you know, the time when those teams can themselves start to innovate and experiment with data and AI, that is truly when they the company will start to scale. And that is, you know, what I think, uh, you know, Google said, you know, when they think about, you know, becoming an AI first organization where, you know, data and AI is a natural part of every product and services that they have throughout the company. So just having that understanding and, and the goal to mm -hmm. at one point in the future, it will take some time. But if you mm -hmm. have that goal in place, I think that will be a, a good measure of success, at least. Yeah, I, th I think I think what you, you what you need is a. Um, I mean, Andrew Ng talks about uh, you know the, the ability to do both technical due diligence of AI projects, but also the sort of the business side of it, the business due diligence. Or you know, I think they are equally important. And, and for this to work, you you need to have the technical know-how. Obviously, to to be able to do technical due diligence, due diligence is, is this a problem that we solve with these algorithms? But you also need this. You also need these business translators or whatever you want to call them that can actually yeah. identify what problems you can actually solve using various AI technologies. And I think that is, uh, you know, that that is one of the hard parts uh, because uh, it's it's not just throw a ton of data onto a problem and then you have this AI, you know, right solution. Uh, I don't think so many people believe that today, although, yeah, but, but I mean, you, you need to, you need to identify what opportunities do you actually have and what are suitable for this and what are not. Um, and then those business translators, I think are a key, uh, key resource if you want to do this transformation or if you want to sort of operationalize the use of AI in your organization. Um, and I don't think they are, they are not too many uh, out there, uh, unfortunately. No. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And when, I mean, with my experience where we were able to scale quite fast was really because we could show the business value. And in that case, we probably we were investing at least one third of the whole total investment in the, you know, pure, you know, AI automation meeting business, the business transformation side, understanding the business side, working with uh, the stakeholders and the executives to, you know, articulate the business problem and showing the business value of the different solutions and, and getting everybody, you know, around you with you to remove some of the roadblocks. Um, and, and that I think that that is probably quite easy to forget that part mm -hmm. of the uh, investment. Maybe you need to add 50% on the on the bill for, for the for the data platform and the data scientist team to be able to have them really, you know, functional. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, it, it needs to be, it needs to be, you need to be allowed to fail and fail with pride, right? Uh, yes. and, and you need to have that level of um, autonomy or authority or whatever you want to call it. And, and that, of course, requires buy-in from, 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 from senior management. Uh, um, otherwise, I don't think it's the senior management who should, uh, you know, maybe necessarily in the beginning formulate the AI agenda. So in that case, the top-down approach where you say this is our AI agenda or AI strategy, let's go, you know, execute. I think this needs to be a collaboration, but you definitely need the buy-in 
because eventually you will, you will need a budget and you will need to make sure you don't lose your job if you fail. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think that'll, that, that, that would happen in, in, in Sweden or in our part of the world, but uh, failing is a, is a great thing uh, in, in this sense, I believe. And, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, agreed. Patrick, did you have something to add to that before we move on to the next question? Well, I think uh, what Anders raised about uh, the time horizon is very important. I think uh, in order for transformation to, to run its course, uh, I think you need to have a vision of the future and your place in it. Uh, and I think uh, in our times, people are quite reluctant to say, well, in five years, the world's going to look like this. So therefore, people are reluctant to set up five-year research projects, although that may be the thing to do. So I really think that what this, what, what, what successful business transformation is all about is understanding the trends that impact you and, and your business and the company and how to then, as Gretzky said, you know, skate to where the puck is going to be and, and when you're ready to receive it. So really it's in it has very little to do with actual nitty-gritty uh, ai projects and you don't need to stand up a lot of pcs there are a tremendous amount of use cases proven out that are just there your competition mm -hmm. may use it uh, already uh, companies Absolutely. that are not relevant uh, for your in terms of direct uh, competition may still have stuff that you can benefit and learn from if you just look around you yeah. so i think the greater perspective on where the market is heading and your place in it will give you the confidence that you need to then allow, you know, agility and trans, um, transparency across the company, which needs to be there for open culture to allow, you know, innov innovation to occur wherever it occurs. It may be forced through the paying of, of clever guys to come in and tell you what to do, or it can come from just being bold enough to listen to what somebody on the shop floor says about, you know, if we just tweak this thing this way, it would be better for this reason and then go for it. So I don't think, I really think it's, it's you need the vision and you need the confidence that your vision is correct and then act on that. And then, as you said, Matthias, you know, if it's wrong, hey, okay, you screwed up, next try. Mm. <laughs> I have a question to you, Alexander. Being, I mean, you, you, with your background in, in, in you know, transformation work, do you see, uh, is this, is this type of, uh, you know, transformation that in, in, in some way involves automation and AI and the use of that in, in, in comp or organizations, um, what, you know, is there a big difference, you know, here uh, as, as, you know compared to other kinds of transformation uh, initiatives and efforts. I mean, we can talk about digitalization as a transformation, huge transformation effort, right? That, that everyone is going through or going through, right? And this is just a part of it, but do you see specific issues or problems with when we talk about AI and automation in terms of transformation agendas or, or uh, projects? No, I, I, I get a bit of a feeling that maybe this was to some extent overhyped. Yeah. For a while, it, it basically went from nothing to to a yeah, lot of hype with a lot of, as you said, a lot of proof of concepts, maybe with a lot of failed proof of concepts. And maybe in some area, some organizations, that, that was it. Then you say, we tried it, it didn't work. While, while maybe in the beginning, you might need to do 10 proof of concepts to have two successful use cases and th and those two might be the ones that you know really gives you the fuel to uh to to kick it off 
when I was in management consulting, I think there wasn't much talk about um, about this kind of topic some 10, 10 years ago. But but now, uh, when when I'm at the kind of software side working with business partners, then we see that obviously every every consultancy in the world is having some kind of offering around this uh, this topic. So of course something has something has changed and, and I think companies are investing a lot more now than what they did five years ago or or ten years ago but probably a lot of companies have a long long way to uh, to go but uh, I've also had the, had the lecture working with India for for many years and then there we see an ex, you know fantastic amount of competence coming out of the universities and also all the the services companies that exist in in India, so I, I think I think a lot of uh, Swedish organizations could benefit a lot by you know broadening their horizons and looking at some of these topics in a little bit more global perspective. As we know that competence might not be abundant here in uh, in the in the Nordics. I don't Definitely. know if it was a good, uh, good uh, answer to your question, Matthias, but yeah, reflections on what I've seen. To my yeah, yeah. Obviously, there is something going on here. I mean, if if we think about transformation and, and, you know, knowing that we need to move from point A to point B, and often we know what steps are needed to, to, to you know, we need to take to get there. Uh, we need to change our billing systems. We need to go more digital uh, in, in terms of how we handle, you know, customer interactions or how we handle our, you know, documents, you know, documentation internally. There's so many things where there's, you know, a, couple, a few options to, to choose from. When we talk about AI, I think many struggle with, you know, what are we going to do with this apart from specific applications? So where, what, what, when we talk about transformation and AI, what is it gonna do for us? And I think, I think that is one of the problems why transformation and keeping, you know, you know having AI as part of a, you know, core transformation of companies is difficult. Because it's it's uh, yeah the 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 ultimate uh, goal or, or outcome is is unclear when we start out in, in in some way, and maybe most organizations will not totally revamp their their purpose and their whole business model like you talked about Anders with Spotify and Google. Maybe maybe for most companies, AI and automation would be about just you know getting a better customer experience and, and getting you know more operational efficiency while yeah, still yeah. doing the same kind of same thing um, towards the same types of, of customers yeah, uh, yeah. And I think that that's totally one yeah. that's one common misconception I think you know that about the differences between traditional software engineering and AI engineering if you call it that and you know one of the obvious differences of course is that AI is very much dependent on the data that is being used, whereas traditional software engineering is more dependent on the code. And it's easier to plan that I want to build this mobile app or backend uh, system or web frontend or whatever it is. Uh, whereas you cannot really say if a certain AI system will work until you tried it on the specific data that you're going to use. So that adds a completely different level of lack of knowledge that you have to have to be much more exploratory. You have to mm. be experimenting much more. You have to do the failing first, fast, mm. and, and doing what you said, Alexander, with, you know, try 10 different things, not one. And probably most will fail, but the one that do succeed will probably be really good. 
So, you know, being able to recognize once again, you know, what the difference is between traditional software engineering and AI, which is for one, the dependency to data, which is much higher, and also that the tooling maturity is so much lower when it comes to AI compared to so traditional software engineering. Mm. Mm. So that will cause problems and that mm. will cause a lot of POCs to end up in a prototype graveyard. Mm. And I think it's an important uh, you know, fact to try to share across that people understand and plan for. One, one uh, question to, to you, Anders, as you coming from a company that was you know, providing an AI platform with, that is kind of democratizing AI and there are a couple of companies doing uh, doing similar things where where you say that you know um, uh, what should I call it business uh, uh, citizen developers could emerge from from normal business uh, SMEs and if we just make the tooling much easier, basically everybody could create their own AI models. How um, how quickly should an organization move in that? that direction since that could also kind of a little bit um, bring a lot of uh, chaos you can say <laughs> maybe different things being done at the same thing being done at many many places quickly yeah. uh, uncoordinated while not you know connecting the big picture so that is like the decentralization versus centralization question if you have a certain amount of money in, in an organization to to invest in this how yeah. How much You're opening you a bit Pandora's time? box here, and, and I think we don't have that much time, but I can give a quick answer at least. And I think, you know, one of the most common mistakes that a lot of companies do is that they try to build everything from scratch. They think, you know, just because they see, you know, the model is out on GitHub, you know, you can download the latest um, yeah, BlenderBot 2.0, and, and why not simply put it in production? What is what? What could the problem potential possibly be? Then people haven't really understood, you know, how the code quality of these kind of research level repositories is so low so it's not suitable at all to be put in production in any way and you will have a huge problem in trying to maintain them over time and the level or the, the the time necessary to do experimentation on your own data will be so slow so you will not get any progress at all unless you have the big research team unless you have the huge competence knowledge in-house which most companies don't so I think this is a big misconception that I hope and I wish more companies understood that just because you can see there is some data set out there on Kaggle or there is this model uh, deployed on Hugging Face or there is this code available in GitHub, that doesn't mean you can put it in production and find value from it. There is so much more necessary to make that happen. And that, you know, misunderstanding and misconception, I can I think it's the most common question we got, you know. We can see, you know, it's out on GitHub. Why can't we simply use it ourselves? Well, you know, we say, try it, see how well it works. It will fail. And and this, you know, this is a classical problem of uh, immaturity of tooling that people don't understand. And uh, you know. The tooling that we have today, it's made by tech giants for tech giants. It's made by Google, by Facebook, by Alibaba, for Google, for Facebook, for Alibaba. It's not made for normal companies that don't have the same, you know, research groups, infrastructure, data, and knowledge that they do have, and computing power that they do have. 
yeah, okay. I, I will try to stop there, even though I could continue for <laughs> half an hour more if you want to. No, no, I, I we did the same, right? We had to, you know, enable democratization while still limiting democratization and you know, <laughs> making it con controlled democratization, yeah. you, could, you could say. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, challenge, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I think it's definitely uh, something, like you say, that you could, you could continue talking about forever, but unfortunately we don't have forever to talk about it. <laughs> Um, so yeah, we'll definitely move on to sort of the last question now. Um, so this is Patrick's question. So what is operational AI and how does it differ from traditional research in AI? Um, so Patrick, if you want to just give a little bit of an explanation as to why you think this um, question is important. Well, I think Anders just answered that beautifully and that's it, right? So what is, what is so fascinating with research is that uh, some of the results that come out of research are so seductive. They are so fascinating. It's amazing what's coming out of research, right? But that does not mean that that is what you, the target state that you should be shooting for if you're, a, if, if you're anybody, really. I mean, if you're a mid-sized Swedish company and all of a sudden, you know, something amazing is available thanks to a giant beast of GPT-3 type, you know, parameters, then it's, that, has, that means nothing for you. Although theoretically, certain breakthroughs certainly point towards the future where we can see we will be heading. Uh, so I really think that that mature distinction between the, the implications of, of even of, of you know, peer-reviewed, replicated, uh, uh, proven out the theory and science, that is a different thing than your operational use of certain techniques or technologies that will benefit your specific business. So I don't think we, we should, we shouldn't, we shouldn't discount uh, the value of uh, going about this a bit gently and carefully and relying on on uh, hardened out uh, um, solutions, platforms, uh, applications, services mm -hmm. coming from a place outside of the company. Um, so I think you should certainly keep an eye on where research is heading, especially if you if you want to try and establish that that vision a couple of years out that, that you want to build your strategy around. But I don't think it translates, like Anders points out, it doesn't translate into operational efficacy for you necessarily. Um, I think we see this, this is sort of a general truism when it comes to uh, how research relates to um, to operational value. I, I, I mean, I love the space program. I love we're going to space. I'm not very interested in what Richard Branson and, and Jeff Bezos are doing, suborbital or whatever. But I think what, what NASA has been doing forever and what's, what Elon Musk is doing with SpaceX is amazing. And, and the research fueling those possibilities are great. But it doesn't mean that we can easily see the here and now value of spending all that money on those types of projects. So they, they are not for everybody. And I think we need to be OK with that and just say, OK, well, what is what, what is what is what is a good idea for us in re, in regards to making use of this promising field of AI? And I think then then you're in your your field, right, Alexander? Then you look at what's the business, what's the market dynamics, what are the the suboptimized potential benefits of, of changing things the way changing the way we're doing, and maybe some of those changes will be fueled by judicial use of AI. Great. But it may also be fueled by AI research breakthroughs that are 30 years old. Oh, no, exactly. And I think, you know, I can say operational improvements, you know, fueled by 
by AI will, of course, open the eye for a lot of people of the opportunities of AI and probably, you know, further increase the will to invest and, and focus in, in, in research type of, uh, of AI. Uh, probably most people need to see the, the proof first before they really can you know jump on the jump on the idea mm. uh, there's so i mean the, the there's still a gap between re research results and and you know you know when you can go from there to to practical implementations or applications of it uh and i'm sure every every time something goes out there uh you know GPT-3, you know, I get the question, well, why don't we just use that? Or, or from customers saying, well, we saw this, why, 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 you know, why can't we do that? Yeah, of course you can, but it's, it's not just about taking a piece of technology and put it into a system and then you're good to go. I mean, there's all of these other aspects that, that go with any normal engineering or product development or anything that needs to be in place for, for this to be actually useful. Mm. And, and also, um, some of the things that you see out there, they are amazing. I mean, you, you all saw the Google Duplex uh, thing a couple of years ago, right? Where, you know, you had this robot calling to book a hairdresser's appointment or book a table at a restaurant. They, 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 they are fascinating, but we don't still, we still, you know, well, in a way you can use Google Duplex right in the States for, for certain, you know, you know, private issues maybe, but you know, understanding what it is that that is actually shown, and why is this why is this scenario a robot calling the the hairdressers and not the other way around? Because the other way around would be much more difficult. And mm. if you don't understand the data that goes into a specific result, then you see that well, you see that the the problem is very similar to ours, but the data may be so different. So we're we, our problem is still unsolved, although it's similar. So there's so much in there that you need to sort of you know dig a bit deeper into to understand how far away is this from a practical uh, you know application and implementation. So I would say that there's still a several years gap, you know, between the the you know sort of sci-fi uh, sci stuff that you see and say, well, hey, whew, the future is here, and then when you know when you can actually start using them in in, in practice. So um, we're, we're sort of running also the risk again back to, you know, operationalization and transformation, running the risk of, of being blinded by or, or not seeing the, the woods for, for the trees or whatever. It's, uh, you know, how you translate that. So um, as with any new technology, right? Um, I'm well said, and I can sympathize a lot with what you say, Matthias, about GPT-3. I think I'm, it's the most annoying question I get, you know, why can't we simply use GPT-3? And people don't understand how horribly bad it is compared to other models that's so much better and so much more practical. And yeah, it's, it's very annoying. It's going to but, be very inter interesting to see this, uh, this Blender bot and to see what, what you know, yeah. what, what dust that will stir up. It's going to be, uh, it's yeah, going to be something, uh, yeah. Because that actually is more practical. You can actually run it on a single GPU. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. you know, I think once again, if we try to understand a bit about how the situation looks like in the world today, I think for one, we should be rather grateful that so many of these tech giants, not all of them, um, I, I shouldn't name names, but we have some good examples of tech giants that do share code, that do share models, that do share the data. And you can think about, you know, why did they do that? And they could simply be nice. And um, they could also simply be saying, you know, if we share it, we can get uh, people to help doing research on this, and that will benefit benefit us in the end. And that's probably what they think. And 
but still, you know, why are they not afraid about the competitor, you know, getting access to that? And I think the answer is very simple. And if you take uh, the, the article that Google published in 2015 called Hidden Technical Depth of Machine Learning, that they basically said themselves that the actual model itself and the data is like 5% of the whole system that you need to actually operationalize mm. it to put it mm. in production. 95% is just a supporting system around it. And they mm. don't share that. Mm. You have to try to build it yourself. Mm. You will fail doing that most of the time. So obviously they're super grateful that they, if they share the data in the model and other people try to simply find some small improvements for that, they, they could also take benefit of that, but they still know that they can't build all the 95% supporting system around it. So they're happy to do so. I think, you know, one, if we just try to end with, with a nice quote, this is from Jeremy Howard. He was previously president of Kaggle and now the founder of Fast AI, who for one published courses and also libraries for, for making the latest type of deep learning more accessible. He was asked uh, by Lex Friedman on some podcast, you know, what do you think about uh, research and deep learning? And he said, I think most research in deep learning is a complete waste of time. And what he meant with that, if I were to try to understand it, is that, you know, most of the research deep learning is about trying to find a 0.1 percentage higher accuracy for some academic data set that is so different from a real industrial real world data sets and situation yeah. that you otherwise have that it doesn't really benefit for normal real world mm. use cases what you should focus on instead is questions about you know how can you as a company that don't have the big infrastructure really make use of this which is other techniques like active learning or federated learning or self-supervised learning or semi-supervised learning and these type of techniques that minimize the need to have annotated data which mm. normal companies don't, and you don't, mm. you can't use academic data sets, you have to use real data. If you start focusing on those type of techniques and that type of research question, that would be really beneficial. And, mm. um, and I think he, he's very right in, in that aspect. Mm. But still, I think we should be grateful, but not too naive on, on why tech giants you know, do share some part of their work. They know, of course, that you, know, you can't simply put it in production just by having it. Um, but they're very thankful that a lot of other people try to to benefit a bit. Uh, but but, but again, uh, I mean, to be to be to, to uh, you know to, to speak in favor for for many of them, if we compare how it is today, if you want to try to create something and build something, it's so much easier to do that today than you yeah. know five years question. ago, where you had to go and Absolutely. buy your own GPUs and you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I mean, they're 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 some of them are you know at least trying. Uh, you know, if they have a hidden agenda, I, I won't, you know, speculate about that. But at least trying to to to, to help out in, in in getting this technology out and, and operationalized and maybe even democratize it in, in, in some way. So, yeah, th there's there's a the positive angle to it as well. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, if you did it sound like that, I'm sorry. I certainly <laughs> am the first one to really, you know, be amazed by all the amazing progress that we have seen mm. in recent mm. years. And I'm saying just the recent three, four years mm. in mm. how we can not only scale up to larger and larger models, but actually start to work with models that are of also practical mm. use more and more. Mm. Mm. And how we start to focus on problems that really make mm. AI 
accessible for for mm. more companies yeah. and start to focus on ethical questions and mm. techniques that may, makes it possible to preserve privacy while mm. still being take you know taking advantage of these techniques so it's certainly happening a lot mm. and i think the potential you know i think today we have more than enough technique for most companies to start making use of ai today yeah yeah that that's not the problem uh, so the problem is more on you know having this kind of a holistic mindset that we have said here, mm. and we need to, to make people understand, you know, what the proper use of AI is and how you do mm. that.